0: Hey, everyone. My name is Bill D'Alessandro, and welcome back to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. Today on Acquisitions Anonymous, I am with Mills and Heather, and we discuss a citrus squeezing business. They bring in limes, lemons, and oranges and squeeze them into juices, selling them in everything from little eight-ounce bottles to 47-gallon drums uh, into the food service and market. Uh, this deals from Axial, so it's a little bit bigger, a little bit more sophisticated uh, pretty cool one to talk about. Uh, I really enjoyed this episode, and I
1: think you will too. Today's sponsor is Employer Flexible. And what Employer Flexible does is really function as a fractional HR department for your company or business. Um, I've used them numerous times in putting together my companies. I've used them when I bought companies. I've used them when I started from scratch. And basically, when you're moving quickly or when you don't want to spend the time putting together your own HR department, benefits all that kind of stuff, and you want to get the scale of being part of a larger group, you can reach out to Employer Flexible. And what Employer Flexible does is give you that buying power as if you're you're part of a bigger group and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I love working with them for numerous reasons. One is I know the owners and a lot of the staff and they've always treated me super good. And then the second thing is I hate HR. <laughs> like I don't enjoy it at all. Uh, and this way I can know it gets done right. Uh, I get the benefits of having a big, fully staffed HR department and the flexibility of having a, a vendor like Employer Flexible being there as a partner throughout my journey and making sure that everybody I work with is happy, taken care of, and we can focus on what really matters in our business, which is take care of our customers. So uh, you can find their contact details, locations of their very off- various offices, as well as more details on how they will help your business by going to employerflexible.com. And again, that's employerflexible.com and thanks to them for sponsoring today's episode.
0: We are back on Acquisitions Anonymous. And today you've got Mills, Heather, and I. And Mills just got done telling us there is no recession, which is great news. <laughs> Famous last words. Jeez, thanks, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so so if there is a recession, it's definitely Mills' fault. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Blame it on Mills. <laughs> so... We have, uh, speaking of things that should be recession-proof, we have a flavors and liquid concentrates business today, uh, which is pretty cool. It's from our friends over at Axial Market. Uh, if you're not familiar with Axial, uh, it's usually bigger deals. as a vetted marketplace, whereas kind of biz by sell, everybody can just post anything they want. Um, the deals on Axial have to be approved, and they're usually represented by uh, an investment bank or an intermediary. Um, so you're typically going to see like a little bit higher quality deal on Axial and sometimes a little bit bigger deal uh, on Axial. So we've been mining Axial lately uh, for cooler, different deals. Uh, and this is one of them. So Mills, you want to take us away? Yes.
2: So this one of the one of the tells on a teaser is, you know, in this case, we don't have the teaser direct from the investment banker. We just have kind of a, an anonymized Axial version. And uh if, if the deal is re- referred to as Project Something, you know that there's an investment bank working on it. It's not a broker. So this one's called Project Lemon Lime. It's a niche. Well, sorry, the, the headline is ingredients company in lemon, lime and orange citrus frozen and liquid concentrates. That is a mouthful. So they just, you know, Project Lemon Lime. It's a niche citrus, in, citrus juice ingredients company that serves the food manufacturing and food service segments of the market. In addition, they have offerings that are directed at consumers and grocery retailers. Their product offerings include frozen concentrates, frozen orange lemon and lime purees, and bottled shelf-stable lemon and lime juice Packaging sizes range from retail size, small squeeze bottles, 12 ounce bottles, 32 ounce, all the way to the bulk 25 to 47 gallon buckets. I mean, that is just making my mouth pucker thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> the company has a niche. Manu- the company as a niche manufacturer produces a natural ingredients product by avoiding adding citric acid and only sourcing and using the best lemons, limes, and oranges. All of their products are bottled and packaged in their processing facility. The company enjoys a who's who list of customers in the food service and food manufacturing sectors. They say they have a healthy focus um, on ingredients in food manufacturing. Citrus benefits are packed or back. Citrus benefits are back post-pandemic. I think they've... They were, they were, (laughs) it's it's a right. right? It was, you got the benefits before the pandemic, you got them during the pandemic, and they're (laughs) still there. Tailwinds (laughs) for flavoring and natural preservatives. Not sure what about that. The company history with science is the next header. Company was founded in the 1950s by a citrus chemist and bacteriologist. This changed the way lemons, limes, and orange ingredients were processed, packed, frozen, pureed, and shipped company has been family owned and operated ever since. The reason for the sale says the owners of Project Lemon Lime have been operating the family business for over 50 years and are at retirement age. The company has a strong team in place. Owners are willing to stay on during a transitional time of one to two years. Transaction being contemplated is a complete sale of the business to a capable group who can take the company's reputation, staying power, current supply and distribution to the next level. So we've got uh, 2020 through 2022 actual financials, and if you're on YouTube, you can see this on the screen, and then 2023 estimate um, financials. But the revenue went in 2020; they were at six million. Then it went to seven point seven, then eight point two, and in 2023 they estimated nine million dollars in top line. The EBITDA on those uh, in 2020 was one point eight million, then two point three million, then two point seven. And now they're forecasting three million dollars in EBITDA on nine million in revenue. This is very linear. This is very smooth. This is very, you know, predictable. You know, kind of just this is up and to the right. Um, the margins seem fairly, you know, fairly stable. But we don't have any other detail, any other um, finer details on it. What do you guys think?
0: So, I mean, let, let me just say one thing that jumps out at me. Right, this always kills me. So I've got. Four years of financials from 2020 to 2023, it goes from six million to nine million dollars. The business grows by 50% in three years, mm-hmm. right? The three-year period they show us. But then they tell us it's a 50-year-old business. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it takes them uh 47 years to go from zero to six million, and then they go from six million to nine million in three years, and then suddenly the owners feel like retiring. <laughs> This, like, it's just all so convenient because like you read this at first and you're like, Oh, it all seems reasonable. It's an old company. It's growing nicely. And the, you know, there's a decent reason for them to be selling. They're retiring. But then you take a second, you think about it and you go, wait a minute. Like, so like, why is there this huge inflection point in the last three years? And why all of a sudden do the owners want to retire now? What is I like, I would really need to unpack that and in some cases it can be one of two things it
2: can be that it took them 50 years to go from 0 to 6 or they went from 0 to 20 and then there were structural changes in the business and it came down and now they're just showing us the last 4 years of you know linear upwards growth i've seen a lot of businesses where it's like that and they're like yeah we used to have you know 300 employees and we did all these different things and then you know a a division left. We had a fallout, you know, owner died, whatever. And now we're a totally different business, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. You just got to dig in and see what I need more than three years worth of snapshot.
3: And could it be an exit planner did a good job? I mean, could someone have come along and done some consulting here and said, Hey, if you do want to retire in four years, this is, these are the things you've got to do. I mean, I like to your point, Mills, that wouldn't be a bad thing if they, they did them and they, and they were effective. Uh, But, but, but also, is this sustainable? I guess is the other thing is we just grew finally 50%. Um, is that sustainable? Is it also just a sales function um, that they finally kind of turned on? And, and then how dependent are you on some salespeople who maybe did very, very well in the last few years? Definitely a lot of questions when something that old has grown that quickly. Um, but the benefits of citrus
0: yep. are back. <laughs> so <maybe it> <laughs> citrus <is> back post pandemic. <laughs> well, I mean, let's not um, this is
2: manufacturing, right? So they have a facility. They have, you know, at their asset heavy. And you've got to dig into the details here. Like ha- had some friends, knew knew a guy who um Expanded his brick plant, you know, built extra kilns, ramped up pre 2008, had a ton of, you know, capacity and then demand for, you know, residential bricks and brick in general fell off of a cliff. And, you know, the business is upside down on a bunch of debt that they you know had to build all these facilities. And you can't just like turn this on and off overnight. There is a ton of sunk cost. So you look at this and say, OK, this could be a, a production line that is all 50 years old and it's just held together by a hope and a prayer. And they're squeezing more revenue out of the same amount of you know equipment and it's older and you've got a ton of deferred capex, ton of you know, deferred maintenance. Or you could get in and go, wow, they actually have reinvested a bunch of money into the business. They've modernized, they're able to do more with less. What you know, you just don't know until you get in. But the assets are going to tell a lot of the story on this because you could, you could get in there and realize I have to spend five million dollars in order to grow the revenue. I just can't sell anymore. I can't make anymore. But that that's a hard that's a hard thing. Before we hit record, Bill was talking about the magic in business of just getting on a plane. This is one where you got to go see it, and you could walk into the factory and the the production plant, and you're going to be able to tell a lot really quickly.
3: Yeah, I tell a lot of my clients who buy a capex or are looking at buying a capex-heavy business. Um, I've never closed on a deal like that where the the new buyer didn't come back and tell me within the first year that they had to spend a lot more on capex that first year to keep just to keep it running uh, to to repair things. And uh, you know, I think people don't realize that the that the current owners know that equipment kind of intimately and they know how just how to keep it going and a new buyer comes along and uh, a lot of it breaks and uh you know you've got to fix it so yeah capex is huge um
0: consideration for a deal like this and and that is something that you can finance right heather i mean like that's easy to finance but it's still real money even if you have to borrow it so you don't want to get hit with having to finance five million dollars of equipment either two years after you buy this thing
3: Right, it's sort of a capital allocation question. You know, how much cash are you going to have to have at close to to comfortably operate um, and and cover the capex? You know, we go through an exercise when we finance these types of companies: is what should the normalized maintenance capex be? We're never right. You know, like it, it's just a it's a guess um, because we don't know the equipment very well, and you know it it. It can be very, very costly, and we can be way off. And we try to pad the number as much as we can. You know, we come up with what we think is reasonable, and then we add more to it just because. Um, so that it's it's a it's always a bit of a mystery, and it, it, it's a risk that um, a lot of people don't fully consider when they're looking at a business that's got a lot of equipment.
0: Yep, and you have to be reserving every year. You got to be kind of putting cash aside for that deferred capex. Um, a lot of times, you know, I see like old businesses like this, uh, they usually don't have a lot of debt on them because one of two things has happened. Either they're stretching the 50 year old equipment for everything it's got, or they've just used cash and they've been maintaining it and it's been well run and the owner is allergic to debt and he's just doing it the right way. But rarely do you see a 50 year old family business with debt on the balance sheet. That's
2: right. I I have a real life story about this. So a friend of mine owns a a trucking company and a food, a food processing company. And we were talking at the baseball field the other day, our kids play together. And I was asking them about, you know, fleet kind of maintenance and, you know, just how do they, how do they manage their fleet of trucks? And they, they kind of finance or lease, you know, or lease to own. They they have like some different things that they do, but they own like, you know, 60, 70 um, semis and a bunch of trailers. And he said, yeah, when, the, when our trucks, they have in-house mechanic just like us, they're a lot bigger than us. But he's like, yeah, when they get up to, you know, on a semi, when they get up to like 350,000 miles, maybe half a million, if, if we're pushing it, um, we're recycling those out because you still get a lot of residual value. You can sell them, roll that, you know, into, you know, the equity of the, the new asset and it just is more predictable. Um, we have a, we have a semi that we own that has 1.1 million miles on it. Wow. And it's like I, I bought a founder-owned business. You know, I mean, we have a full-time mechanic. They have squeezed, and the thing still runs. We're getting the clutch changed on it right now. It is all pulled apart and in pieces, but it's it's night and day different, right? It's it, and you walk in and you go, "Oh yeah, like sure, how bad could it be?" But you extrapolate that over the base of assets that might be, you know, several million dollars worth of assets, and go, "Oh my gosh, you could you could if if a couple things." you catch some bad luck and a couple things go belly up equipment wise in a short period
1: of time you're hurting
3: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: do you need video content for your business that doesn't suck double jump media is your one-stop shop for high quality highly engaging video content they have over a decade of experience producing great memorable videos for their clients across north america and beyond And those clients have taken those videos and turned that into millions more in sales for their business to help them grow and achieve their goals. And a distinguishing characteristic that sets them apart is they have a small team that does everything in-house. So what you see on their portfolio page and what you see on their website, that's what you're going to get. They do everything soup to nuts, consulting, scripting, strategy, production, post-production, helping you put it all together to produce something that is just as top-notch as your brand. So whether you're rebranding an existing product, you've just bought a business, or you're trying to grow the one that you have, the Double Jump team is one that is down to clown. By the way, they wrote that down to clown thing. I know what it means, but it sounds awesome. So to get in touch with them, visit doublejump.media, fill out their form, tell them that we sent you, have an introductory call at no cost to you, and figure out what's best for your business. They're great folks and can help you on your journey in producing amazing video content to help meet your business needs and goals. And thanks to them for sponsoring today's episode.
3: This business has got energy costs too, with in cold storage, I imagine, right? So, probably a freezer, a big one. I was mentioning before we started recording, I, I toured uh, one of these freezers at the port of Los Angeles one time, uh, looking at a company that uh, did something very similar. It, was, it wasn't citrus juices, but it was all kinds of other fruit juices. And they were selling uh, them in bulk to uh, uh, soda. Manufacturers, you know, um, they, they were going into drinks like that. And I imagine that's where a lot of this goes to and into different drink mixes. Uh, but the freezer was, it was it was obviously uh very expensive to build and this is the kind of thing where you probably don't move very often you know um it had different levels of cold i don't know if this particular company needs it but like you know the beginning of the freezer where it feels pretty cold and things are frozen is just you know one level and you keep going deeper and way way in the back is where you have um the coldest storage and uh They made it clear that I couldn't stay there very long, (laughs) which I was glad not to do because I wasn't dressed for it at all. But uh, it was it was quite interesting. Um, So I I also wonder because that was at the port. So that was a business that was importing the juices frozen. Um, And, uh, you know, that was very expensive, but they were different types of juices. I would imagine citrus. They didn't say, but I would imagine this is probably mostly domestic crops. Any guesses on that? That's what I would get.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause it's gotta be fresh and it's, it's, they say, so I want to understand the industry a little bit, right? To your point, Heather, a lot of this stuff is imported frozen. Uh, and they even imply in the teaser that this business is different because they don't add citric acid to it. Uh, I'm sure everybody has had a, you know, margarita made with margarita mix. And it purports to be lime juice, but it's actually mostly just citric acid, like industrial. And it just like puckers your entire system. It's terrible. Um, So I think these guys are differentiating. And that's why I think it's domestic, that it's not citric acid, because citric acid is a preservative also. So they seem to have differentiated here. But I would want to know, to your point, Mills, about the brick industry, about the guy spent all this money on a new brick plant and the brick industry fell apart right? And there's really nothing you can do. I really want to understand this business's competitive position in the squeezed, pucker your mouth fruit juice industry, right? You know, like is, is China and South America imports coming for this? How has the industry been trending over the last couple of years? You know, is, are there other producers of this without citric acid? What's the drawback of not doing it with citric acid? Because there's a reason most other people do it with the citric acid. It could be that, you know, this business is smaller because it's nichier, right? You know, mass produced stuff needs citric acid because it makes it cheaper because there's less waste and it's preserved. So it's possible that this, their stuff is 30% more on shelf than the other stuff. That's not the end of the world as long as consumers are willing to pay for it. Some niche, but that's going to put a cap on your growth. So I'd really want to understand the fruit juices industry and competitive landscape because it's an acid heavy business. You probably can't pivot really quick. Like you're making, you're making these products. I want to make sure there's still demand for it. Well, and you know, I think we've
2: talked about it in, in maybe it was a pharmaceutical ingredient supplier or something. Maybe it was food, but I mean, this is a B2B business and you've got to, you've got to think about the FDA components of not just right. What, what this company is doing, which they would have compliance to deal with, but also their customers. and so. If, you know, if you have a B2B relationship with, you know, like Minute Maid or something, right, and they're putting your raw ingredient into a frozen lemonade, you know, uh, dessert kind of thing, and they want to switch up suppliers, there's a domino effect. It's not just as easy as, hey, we've been buying cardboard boxes from so-and-so and and we need to buy new cardboard boxes from somebody else because they're, you know, two and a half percent cheaper. Whenever food companies change ingredients, it's a really, really big deal. Uh, When I was doing MA advisory work, I was visiting a client in Texas and I was just like looking for another, I was just looking for businesses to go talk to and meet. And I reached out to this guy, reached out to a bunch of people, but one guy was like, sure, you can come by. And I I go and lo and behold, they are the people who make the dry seasoning that went on Doritos. Ah. And like, that's not on their website, but like I talked, you know, went and met with him and talked to him and he was just really open. And, He was trying to transition the business to the next generation, but they were the people that made, and they were like Dorito. They basically can't change it, but we also can't change anything. Like we can't go competitively try and source from somebody else than the people we've always been using because the quality control. Like imagine if it's like whenever Coke and Pepsi try to like you know reinvent themselves, it it flops most of the time because people are like, no, it has to taste the same way it's always taste, or else you know it's not Coke to me. It's not you know, uh, a frozen Italian ice or something like that.
3: Yeah. And there was a, there, I wonder this growth that they've had since 2020 just kind of popped into my head because I did talk to a couple of, I talked to a uh, a business that did the peppers for hot sauces, right? And, and that was fascinating because they can ship that uh, unrefrigerated. If it's, you know, it t- takes a chemist to get it just right. But uh, once it's at the right pH, those are shipped in these big plastic bladders inside of a of a shipping container without refrigeration, um, the type that goes into Tabasco, that kind of thing. Anyway, they were um, yeah, able to expand their plant since COVID, based on a USDA program that was uh, was targeted toward food supply companies. So I'm just curious, from as a finance person, if this business maybe took advantage of one of those programs since COVID, and maybe that's what drove some of the growth. That would that would be a question I might ask.
0: Overall, I think I like this business. I mean, it's assuming that you're, there's no funny business on why is it growing so fast in the last couple of years and do we think this is sustainable and is there a huge deferred capex, but I think I like it other than those things, right?
3: If it's an individual buyer that comes along, this is at a weird size to finance, maybe just a little small. Uh, so, you know, you've got your no man's land for SBA, like SBA sort of ends at about a million and a half EBITDA size company and conventional doesn't really begin until 3 million and this is barely getting to 3 million so it needs to probably be acquired by somebody who isn't just getting a standalone you know a strategic acquirer or somebody like that private equity who can put a lot of equity into it but it's a little small
0: so heather let's That's the only thing. let's say you were an individual buyer that wanted to acquire this company right how do you do that how would you structure this deal i mean we assume it's probably going to sell for what do you guys think? Five times? Something like that? Probably. So sell for 15 yeah. million bucks on 3 million in EBITDA. So Heather, if I don't have 15 million bucks of cash, how do I get there as an individual buyer?
3: You need what we call sponsors. And uh, and the bank wants heavy hitter sponsors who have been uh, investing in small businesses who have a track record. They're going to probably form a board around you. Um you're going to your economics aren't going to be so great if you found this on your own you know your 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 economics are going to be very similar to what we would call a traditionally funded searcher who eventually only can own up to about 25% of the deal that they find uh, that's your it's going to be similar to that uh, and a lot of people don't like that because they think well wait a minute I went and found this myself I want the same economics that someone who does an SBA self-funded deal gets but when you go too big you just can't because you need all that equity. And if you're going to get some debt, uh, you're going to need those kind of sponsors in your cap table. Um, and so it, it, it drives a lot of people back towards the, the smaller SBA size deals because they don't get personally as great of economics. And this is food service. So I think an individual buyer that would have to have a great resume for this, it, they'd have to have some experience that made sense um, in this industry. So it would be tough for an individual buyer.
0: What is the as an individual buyer? So this the fifth, let's say it's a $15 million deal with $3 million of EBITDA. What is the minimum amount of equity do you think I'm gonna have to bring myself or from my sponsors? Like like what is because obviously I want to raise as little equity as possible because the more outside sponsor equity I raise, the more diluted I get. Uh how mu how do what are some ways that I could minimize my equity requirement on this deal?
3: So you're, first, we start with how much debt can you get? We're gonna—it's about two point five turns of EBITDA. That's the way we say it, but it just means three million times two point five—that's seven and a half million dollars. That's as much as any conventional senior lender is probably going to lend these days. Uh, you know, in the past, maybe three, but this is small and yeah. credits tight. So I'm halfway so there. Say you-
0: I'm halfway there with bank yeah, debt. Seven and a half yeah. out of guess million.
3: what now you need a whole bunch of equity and and some seller note they're not going to let you make up the bulk of that with seller note um, so the the majority of the other seven and a half needs to be equity and it needs to be from again it can't just be any equity it has to be from sponsors um, they're probably going to have some some pretty good terms on that equity uh, you know so so they're gonna get paid pretty well
2: it's going to be more expensive than the debt.
3: A much more expensive than the debt, much, much more expensive than the debt. And you as a buyer who becomes the CEO, um, there are going to be a lot of controls in your operating agreement. So kind of be above and beyond the cost of the equity, you are, um, you know, again, under sort of a board of directors. You might, they may even have the ability to fire you if they don't feel like the performance is there and the growth is happening So it's a very, very different kind of deal, but it's uh, a lot of equity you'd have to raise out of that. So you have to have at least five, six million dollars of equity.
2: So, Heather, I've had this conversation like two or three times now in the last week with folks um, about real estate and operating businesses that it almost feels like right now there there is a incredible, I guess, bent or bias towards being able to do a deal, all equity stabilize it, and then go put debt on it, you know, in in 12 to 24 months and kind of refi out. And I think the lenders that I've talked to about it are like, I would do that in a heartbeat because it, my strike zone widens if it's a going concern and not, you know, or if it's a stabilized building that now has, you know, a better lease in place or whatever it may be. It, it's a totally different proposition from an underwriting perspective if you can you know, get in, acquire the asset, and then all of a sudden a lender is saying, wow, you've been doing this for two years and you've maintained it or you've improved it or you've rolled with the punches. And instead of, hey, I'm, an, I'm a nobody, I'm a new guy here, and I want to sh- start doing this.
3: Absolutely. The, the first year is, the, from the lender's perspective, the riskiest year. So if you're taking that, that risk out, that what we'll call transition risk, uh yeah, it looks a lot better to a bank. But what's interesting is right now the banks would still let's just say you try to do that with seller debt and not that much equity and then you thought okay, now I've got it, you know, it's grown or it's doing great. That's still hard to refinance with a with a bank with if you don't have those sponsors. So it's just kind of a weird time, but I agree if you can somehow get take that transition risk year out of the picture for a bank, the the debt gets much easier to raise. Definitely.
2: Yep. How how material is the term difference, the difference in terms from a loan to value perspective and a, and a rate perspective between, hey, I'm acquiring something and it's new to me and, and I don't have any established, you know, kind of track record there versus refi rates. Let's just say it's, you know, a business who wants to refi out some debt. I mean, is the, the loan to value is pretty dramatically different and the rates are maybe not so different?
3: The rates are not that different. Uh, I, I think that's a function of um, banks aren't really great in this space at risk-based pricing. They don't really have sophisticated models to say, "Oh, this is a lower risk." Now they they just know they have to. You know, the budget says we have to have this much spread and this much yield, and and this is it's fitting in this category, so I have to price it that way. So so the rate doesn't really get that much better. Leverage, yes, maybe uh, you can get a little more leverage um, in in that kind of situation. Um, it's still hard to say because they just, they want really a lot of equity in these non SBA funded deals lately. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting credit market. Um, the SBA lenders have stayed pretty much uh, the same. They haven't tightened up much. Um, and the non SBA lenders have tightened up a lot. They've, They've really gotten super picky.
0: One other way that's worth mentioning to bridge your equity gap, um, is by seller role. So your seller can be one of your equity investors, right? By basically not selling the whole business. You know, if you need like one or $2 million to plug an equity hole, you can ask seller to sell 90% of the business instead of a hundred percent of your business. And that 10% effectively becomes equity contribution, right? Because it reduces your purchase price. Um, Your seller becomes an investor with you. So that's another way to kind of bridge it. You can get seller debt, but you can also get seller equity if he sticks around. And lenders love that, right Heather?
3: Well, they love it, but they they think about they think about the equity in different, you know, I guess let's put it in order, right? The best equity that they like is from experienced sponsors. That's number 1. The the, the equity that they like the most. They like some from the CEO as well if if they can put some in. That's also nice. Um Seller role—it's not cash equity or what we call fresh equity. So we like it. We like that the seller's got skin in the game, but mm, not as good as hard cash that somebody has something to lose. Mm. So I think the banks kind of think of equity in terms of skin in the game. Who's got something to lose here besides the bank? Uh, And you know, and how experienced are they? And what other value add might they be bringing? So the seller brings that extra value add, but doesn't bring the cash. So it usually kind of sits a little bit lower in, you know, in quality, you know, in terms of the way that the lender might look at. It. Yep.
0: Makes sense. All right. Anything else to add on this one? No. I think that's fun. I think it's a good one. I mean, it's if you can put together the deal structure, the 15 million bucks as an individual, I think that's your challenge. Private equity could probably easily take this down with with a higher amount of equity and then refinance it out later. If it is stable and asset heavy, those are easily refinanceable businesses. Uh, Once
2: once I think somebody somebody probably, you know, outbids outbids most, you know, business acquirers on this. I think it's either a private equity tuck in or a strategic that says, great, we do all the other flavors, but we don't have citrus. And they come in and they blow your socks off because they're underwriting it very
0: differently. absolutely true. All right. Let's wrap it up from there. Thank you for listening. If y'all like this episode, it would really help us if you told a friend. We are at our never-ending quest to break even here on Acquisitions Anonymous on all of our editors and everything. Uh, And more listeners really help us do that. So please engage with our sponsors and tell a friend uh, and subscribe on your platform of choice. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.